to the Golf Barons Podcast, Tenuous Links, a golf pun we're not only incredibly proud of, but one we're also sure to emulate. Let us careen through bloviated opinions on all things golf, some outrageous innovation ideas to speed up the game, a few laughs, and an historical retelling of an iconic golf moment. Time to add some swagger to your swing. Hello Barons, today's Tenuous Links Golf Podcast is brought to you by the new Motocaddy M7 Remote Electric Buggy. If you're wanting to add a little swagger to your walk around the course, this little beauty is for you. Powered by twin 230 watt motors to get you easily up, down and around any course you play, it has a ton of features including a rear anti-tip wheel, a USB charging port, an anti-glare screen and a lightweight lithium battery that can be recharged from its base on the buggy. So if you're looking to make that walk a little bit more enjoyable, be sure to check out the new Moto Caddy M7 Remote. Now, moving on to today's show, and we have the whole Barons team together. Dav Mann, Kipper and Philbert, lads, great to see you. Howdy-ho. Good to have the awesome foursome as one, gents. Excited. (laughs) (laughs) So succinct. <laughs> okay, guys, it's been a, it's been a very interesting few days, especially for us down in Victoria. And let's get through these hates because we know uh, there's been a lot of negativity. Let's get rid of it all and move on as quickly as we can. I'm going to kick that off with you, Philly. What have you got for us this week? No, I'm excited this week because I am hate free shooter, and I feel relieved of any week where I would have multo multo hates. I am hate-free. I'm just full of love. But I know who does have a hate shooter, and that's my man Kipper has got a hate. Mate, I, I've got to be honest, and this is going to go down like a lead balloon, I'm hating people complaining they can't go and play golf. It driving, it's driving me nuts. It's obviously my industry, and I've got that many phone calls and texts and emails about the fact that the courses are closed, and I'm like, Jesus Christ, like we're in a pandemic, people. Everything's shut. So just deal with it. I think the first time, Kipper, we were absolutely adamant that golf should continue to be played. I think the reality is that due to a little bit of super spreading in the hotel <laughs> and a little bit of the other stuff that- A bit of night putting. A little bit of night putting, a bit of Mitch, more of Mitch Cumstein, because I do get paid every time I mention his name, Mitch Cumstein. <laughs> Uh, I think now is the time that hopefully there are less and less, if not no complaints, at the moment because we've just buggered we've just buggered it up. But I'm kind of I'm I'm half I, I hate to agree with you, but I hate your hate. Oh, look, I think I think most people accept that it needs to be closed this time around. But I'm I still understand why people are frustrated. Yeah, and, and I'm with you on that because because we're feeling like cage of the animals yeah. at the moment, and no, through no, no fault of our own. And it's I understand there. Massive frustration, and my concern, which we've all we've all we've touched on it several times now, is the mental health of a lot of people who get a lot of relief from playing golf, getting out, and and going for that walk and having that time out on the golf course. I mean, I know personally, I love, I feel a lot better mentally after a round of golf. So I get the I feel upset, Deezer. I get it. <laughs> well, it depends how I'm playing. No, last time I felt good, I think I shot a good number. That's the last time I felt good. Uh, I understand that. You're very valid, mate. It's um, it is good for a lot of people. Uh, well-being there's no doubt about it but just my inbox is filling up from complaints and it's doing my head in well that's they're they're sending emails to you Kipper because they don't know how to send them to Beyond Blue because again they've managed to be silent (laughs) oh it turns out I do have a hate boys well there it is anyway yeah there you go Phil I knew you wouldn't be able to resist I mean like just on that like you know I guess for, for people that aren't involved in the sport that have that are involved in other sports that have had their sports shut down 
you know, they're all saying, well, you know, why is golf special? Why, why do golfers get to keep playing? And our game of, 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 of lawn bowls or whatever it is has been, has been blacklisted. So, you know, you know, I, I certainly see that point of view, but as someone that did sneak out for a, for a quick nine just before uh, the death knell, I didn't come. I mean, I had more chance of giving COVID to the to the sleeping bats on the Yarra at Yarra Bend than I did to any actual human being. I, I was going to give it back to them. I was going to give it back to the bats. You might have found any. Than a human being. I mean, so you know, it's it's a tough one. I, I see both sides of it now. I was probably a bit more of a with you, Kipper, where it's sort of like you know that people are just sooks. But having actually got got out there, I thought you know this 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 couldn't be safer. Here's what I'm going to say to your crap, Dad, is that if you want to whinge about lawn bowls, then go and listen to Tenuous Hijack. Or if you want to talk about tennis, listen to Tenuous Serve and Volley. But this is Tenuous Links. You're amongst friends here, so we don't want to turn away from our beautiful core market. Sorry, David. I'll move on to to my hate this week, which is also around this... this, uh, Bat-loving stuff. The government enforced curfews, boys. I hate government enforced (laughs) curfews. I hate the fact that we in Australia, I never thought we would ever see it in Australia where we're forced into into a quarantine or into a curfew. Um, It just, it feels, I hate the term, it feels un-Australian. It feels like something that doesn't happen in a free society. Now, the reality of it is for me, it doesn't really affect me because at eight o'clock I'm usually sitting down with a bottle <laughs> and the kids are in bed and, and I'm not going out for well, a run. It's, 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 I mean, you don't look like this by going for a run. So um, when they brought out the curfew law, eight till five, I'm like, who the hell is really that affected even yeah, before this? Because <laughs> in the middle you of can't go to a restaurant, you can't go to a bar, you can't like, but this is before the you know, the serious lockdown. So I'm like, who's actually out <laughs> and what are they doing? I want to know because. <laughs> I think it's just. I think it's just the thought of being told you cannot leave your home. It's, uh, that, well, did, it's that, like being sent to your room, you know. So. Did you see, did you see <laughs> the stats in the uh, in the paper? It had oh, there was a thirty three percent reduction in the traffic from the hours of four till five pm, four till five am in the city. And I'm like, so yet again, what are they doing? <laughs> at that hour? There's traffic at that time. <laughs> like what? It all comes back to the life of Brian, and it's Loretta's right to have babies, even though she is Stan. Yes. <laughs> so Stan. And Agreed. you can't have babies, but I want the right to have babies. So you're right. We, I haven't been out past 8 o'clock since, well, um, let's see, 87 You're now. an hour so into that's, you know, 65 years ago. But if I, I don't go out after 8 o'clock other than to put the bins out, and there was that point made that, geez, you want to be careful that that's not a breach. If, but, if there was bars and nightclubs open, well, gee, you would have never got me home in those hours. But, Jesus, I don't know what you do. What do you do? You in the, am, I allowed to, am I allowed to wheel my bin out after 8 o'clock? <laughs> Just, I mean, that's a problem. Not, I don't want to get out on the front lawn. It's like a lockdown, Kipper. You were like the lockdown. You were the 8pm to 5am lockdown guy who had to be into the bar by 8pm and weren't allowed out before 5am. That, that's actually about... So it's an anti-lockdown. Oh, that's what the tale is at the end of this uh, this podcast. That's exactly what it's about. <laughs> oh, excellent. We'll get into... Phil, I do want to doff my cap to you uh, for bringing the life of Brian into this podcast. It's only going to make it make it better. Um, Devman, Devman, there's too much too much hate from me. Um, over to you. Uh, look, I you know as sports starting to come back, and as I'm as I'm watching a bit more of it, I'm, I'm starting to remember all of the annoying turns of phrase and the jargon that comes out of commentators' <laughs> mouths. The, the one that really irks me at the moment is the use of the term. God, I, I'm just, it's, I've, just, I've just lost it. Just completely lost well, it. Surely you've written it down. <laughs> and, uh, the beneficiary. 
he was the beneficiary or did he just benefit? He benefited, <laughs> right? He wasn't the beneficiary. Yes. Just, just, just garbage terms like that. And the question I have for you fellas, being far more entrenched in the game of golf than I am, what are the slang terms, the jargon talk that you hear in the game, you hear on course that just makes you cringe, that just makes you go, you are a wannabe, you're a tryhard, stop talking like that. To your point, there's two that immediately jump out for me, and one is when I hear people say, I'm going to hit the links, and 99.5% of the time they're playing a bloody woodland park, a parkland course, not even understanding what links is. But go golfing. That does my hitting. Golfing as a fr- as, as a frigging description rather. No, I'm playing golf. You play golf, you don't golf. The Americans love to say it. Yeah, do, do you, you golf? golf? No, but I play golf, you dickhead. Uh, well, I'll follow on and say the comment, the, the, that commentary thing really resonates with me, Dav, because if I watch you know, any of the tournaments in America and I have listened to someone analyse swings, there's some rippers out there that do it good. But Johnny Miller has got my measure. He, I don't actually think he knows what a golf swing is. He could do it. He was a jet, but I don't think he has any idea Whack. of a fundamental. Not one. Uh, he's a, the opinions. The opinions of Dion Kipping. Uh, he's on and not shared by everyone. Yeah, well, Johnny's got some issues, and it's 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 legal well, shaking your head. <laughs> but the rest of them quite good. But no, so that's my. You're gonna have to be specific. Yeah, lay one on us, Kipper. Oh, mate, you, you listen to him analyse, not just one, just tomorrow, the listeners out there, go onto YouTube, click on Johnny Miller Analyze Swing, and just listen to him. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me of, like, um, the commentator where he's like, um, so he uh, he takes his backswing here, and he goes up to the top, and, and you just watch, watch this, watch, right through the ball, watch, did you see that? That, that? And that's why he hit it to the right. There isn't any part of that that is educational. But, but he, it's that it's that opposite of the Richie talks, Benno talks, type of commentary. He talks through the stuff up, right? And then the next swing comes on, and the same player, and he laces it, and then he's like, he, he says the same thing, but he says, "And see that? He, he just right down the middle. Now there it is." Right? And like, what? what do you do? What do you just do? be good. Yeah, he's and he's you, saying Johnny Miller told him to put the bar on. Oh, he, he's a he's a who told you he's put a the bar ripper, on? Johnny Miller. Yeah, one of the best. <laughs> no, I think there's a lot of that. There's a lot of that in the AFL, Devin. These aren't specific turns of phrase, but I did point out one because I heard it just before we went on that a particular footballer with the expert comments said he picked it up, he effectively ran with it, and he disposed of it. <laughs> that was the expert. He threw it, he threw it in the bin. He threw it straight in the bin. Yeah. <laughs> so, so he got a possession. <laughs> which reminded me exactly of uh, of Billy Birmingham talking about uh, he comes in with the left foot, followed by the right, the left foot, the right, in quick succession. It's called running, Max. <laughs> have you ever have you ever heard tennis commentated on the radio? It, it's hilarious. Yes, yes. It's, it, it's hard. It's, it's hard. hard. <laughs> back in the corner, forehand in the right hand. Corner, okay, back in, volley, volley put away, winner. And you're like, who, who, what, what happened? <laughs> it would be also, difficult. Just on that, I will say that there is a guy called Brett Phillips who does commentary. I know, I know Brett Brett Phillips quite well. Very, oh. And he is very, very, oh, name drop, ding. Um, he's very, very good. I'll tell you what, I, um, I had the privilege once of going in um, champion data who do a lot of the AFL stats. One of my mates is really high up in that, so he got me in the box to listen to him. To, hey. Do a ding. ding, yeah, to do a, do a uh, obviously a, the, the data analysis of a game, and it was just brilliant because it's like all they do is obviously um, pick up any touch, you know, loose handball get, but the lingo they use is brilliant because they're going to be so quick, and then they've got like basically mm. coders on the left and right <laughs> that are putting in the code to you know make everyone get their, get their data and their stats. It's phenomenal. I, I would listen to that. 
It's like handball receive out for uh, soft tackle, hard tackle, fight like. And, you, and then they throw, and then they throw, throw, but they're so good they throw. throw in names all the way along that. Like it's freaking amazing. That's that should be a podcast that you'd listen you listen to. Would, you, oh yeah, I would. <laughs> Just without doing the, the data analysis and the statistics stuff, there is an interesting point that was made of a um, of a contact that is not a name drop of someone of mine who was once involved with someone who was once involved with an AFL club. So it's so far along, <coughs> it's not a name drop that they actually Ding. get the <laughs> they get the statistics guys to purely based on numbers and based on statistics and timing of where the positions occurred to determine what the theoretical result of the game should be. They overlay that with the game of the result and they try and work out why one did not represent the reality of the other, which I think is fascinating. And I'm, I'm sure at some stage we'll get into that discussion around golf about what stats are important. Yeah. You know, we talk about greens in regulation. Well, is it a green in regulation or is it a green in regulation within a within 10 feet or within a 15-putt mm. zone? Is it, a, is it putts per green or is it putts per green or number of times you, you three-jag it from eight feet coming down the hill because you're shitting yourself because it's <laughs> for the Walker Cup? Anyway, whatever the case may be. Well, on a, on a slightly different topic, which, which might actually lead into my love, gentlemen, but the question I have <laughs> – is is on? Dad's got the run sheet. On, <laughs> I've just taken the reins. <laughs> in terms of in terms of media coverage of sport, and you see, you know, particularly in American sports, and it's starting to infiltrate infiltrate in Australian sports. I got I, I got it out there. I got it out. Is is sideline reporters sticking mics into players' faces? Mid-game, mid-game. They're on the bench. You know, there's a coach who has a timeout and he's dragged away by a journalist and he doesn't get to speak to his team for the 30 seconds because he, because he has to, by, by law of the competition, speak to the journalist. And my question is, when is golf going to adopt this? The guy laces one off the tee, three seconds later, bang, there's a mic in his face. Okay, Dave. and then just as a follow up, then just as a follow up to that, Dev, are they going to be awkwardly standing one point five meters away with a boom mark over the top and uh, very poor framing because okay. it's because uh, we've got to pretend that we're COVID um, efficient, even though we've been. Phil, you're about to tell me that already happens, aren't you? You're about to tell me. Yeah, Dev, no, no, no. Now, what I'm going to say is that since your idea of match play. <laughs> It's been introduced. <clears throat> Since your idea of stroke play, this is some good news. These are things that have happened because of golf parents. Um, Dav, it's been introduced. Um, your idea of actually counting every shot that you hit, yeah, it's been introduced. So this idea, Dav, for the first time is a unique idea. I reckon two podcasts ago, it's already happening on the European you gave me credit for another idea that, that – that, uh, well, what about augmented reality, Phil? No, no. dinosaurs has not been thought about yet, Dav. But they've actually done this on the European tour and they've done it a number of times, particularly on the lesser ranked events, where literally they will hit off and they'll spend 30 seconds walking along next to the player, which brings them a bit closer to it. And there was that event that happened with the four people, with Matthew, Matthew Wolf and DJ and a couple of others, whereby they were mic'd up for the whole round. And it's sort of that, that insight. I'd actually like to have the caddies mic'd up. Not the players, because as Kipper will affirm, even though they're glorified pack horses, <laughs> the caddies might actually say something interesting like, "Would but, you like lemonade or coke?" <laughs> but the key, the key to it, Phil, would be that you. The key would be that you need caddies to not know that they're mic'd up. So that's when it becomes <laughs> yeah. interesting. As soon as they know they're mic'd up, which is what we saw with the the event you were talking about, Phil, yeah. it was one of the most awkward things, awkward bit of television you'll ever see. I actually love the concept, but I didn't like the application. If they didn't know they were being mic'd up, it could be quite quite humorous. You get some good stuff, although there'd be a few disclaimers in there. I'm tipping. And like, imagine if we're, Kipper was mic'd up the third time he got fired on the first hole at the US Open in the second round. I mean, as opposed to numbers four and five, I think that, would have, been, that would have been gold. 
But if we talk about love, if we talk about love, I stepped out of hate, although I threw one in late with Beyond Blue. You know what I love? I love when we get feedback. And I particularly loved getting a message from um, Cameron Heath, who said, um, if you want to see how this one-arm swing, he said, I've really enjoyed watching Golf Barons, you know, enjoying the show, potentially the best show I've ever seen. Now, he might not have said that, but that's what I was in, he was inferring from the feedback. <laughs> well, well said, Kingston. But the one-arm challenge where you and Kipper took each other on, on long par five at Easton, he said, if you oh, want to know. the cuff incident. <laughs> never again. Never again. Soft <laughs> as butter. And, in fact, Al even suggested you were soft as butter. But Cameron Heath, if you'd like to know how to play that whole you know, with just one hand, let me know because I'm a me- – or I was a member at Easton and I've only got one hand. And it was sort of like how good is it that someone's actually both paid attention and actually decided that they wanted to actually communicate with us. And not only that, they knew that we – Needed help. Um, well, one, one that Shooter needed help because he, he actually so was quite a fan of Kipper, but he agreed completely I- with Shooter's <clears throat> this idea that you've just got to sometimes swing with the arms before you rip down with your shoulders. <laughs> But anyway, anyway, three votes to Cameron. It's bringing Heath. a tear to my eye. Thank you very much. Good luck at Gardner's <clears throat> Run. Thanks very much for the um, the feedback. And if we do need that in future, you are going to be the top of our list. We'll get him back when she- Shooter's arm heals. <laughs> yeah, <that's right>. <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, I've got um, my love this week is you know over at the the old course at St Andrews. Well, there's actually quite a few of them around, but the, the, in the pot bunkers, you get those. Uh, is it is it rev, uh, revetted? Or revetted? 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 Yeah. Revetted, you, revetted. You guys are filling me in on this uh, second ago. I didn't, I didn't even know they had a name. There you go. I was in lots of them. <laughs> I love them. I absolutely yeah. love these things. Visually, they're one of the. Now, the reason it's come up is I'm doing a bit of a feature on um, golf's greatest uh, course designers for the for Baron's Life, which is out next week. And um, there's there was a couple of cracking shots of of these styles of bunkers from around different places. One being Paraparaumu in the North Island over in New Zealand. They just there's something very special about these bunkers. But even in terms of how they're made, should it? So so that was what intrigued me is because this is something that I've always loved, and it was floated many many years ago that it might even happen at, down at St Andrews Beach. But the riveted bunker or riveted bunker, um, or maybe I just said the same word twice. Um, it is when the face of it is actually just layers of grass, but not a, a complete grass fronted. It literally is layers of grass as it goes up. So it yeah. looks like there's lines the whole way up. And they're, they're famous throughout <clears throat> Scotland. And with the, with the Paraparumu, what we were able to actually see was how they're made. And I've never before seen one being made where they literally have sods of turf and they just line the bunker one on top of the other and shape them that way. And it is the most dramatic look that leads to a flat-bottom bunker with this absolutely stunning look. Right. So we'll have to post a couple of the, the best um, revetted or revetted Definitely. once we've worked out the pronunciation. Surely stratified is, is, a, is a much better term, far more accurate from the word. <laughs> who are you? Who are you? I don't even know who you are. <laughs> Standing up for lawn bowlers and bloody badminton players. <laughs> Kipper, were they are they the kind of bunkers that, um, on tour you try to avoid, or, or did you? Oh no, we aim for. Did you have a ch- did you have a chance to enjoy them? Did you have a chance to enjoy the beauty of the golf course? Oh, I suppose. You know, honestly, there's just something we've spoken about this before, like links versus, you know, I guess American style versus you know Australian or, or more um, uh, kind of European golf courses. But the links course and and thus the uh, let's call them pop bunkers, revetted bunkers, whatever you want to call them, that they are an iconic. Part of golf, and and and, and that's just yeah. really what it is. Like you look at the face on, you know, obviously 
Seventeen's probably the most famous one at St Andrews, and and it's it's just so iconic. You, no one wants to get in there. And what I do love about that event, and even all those types of courses that have those bungers, is that it's a real penalty. As soon as you're in there, you, you're done. You know that's effectively a shot lost, or you better be able to get up and down from 150 out. Like it's it's a real. Whereas most other bungers around the world, it's no real problem for an elite player. They can hit the green and mm. blah blah blah. But uh, yeah, that's and the beauty of, of the look of them, they just is it just the sheer yeah, depth it's, of them? It's it's, it's 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 two things, right? It's a, it's it is the depth. Like some of those ones on the European Tour are out of control. You're talking, you know, it's half the size of a. Uh, second level of your house, like, that, and that's not exa- exaggerating. Like they're a good four yeah. or five meters up, <laughs> so you got no chance of. Remember you, remember you thought the wall in the um in one of our challenges two and was and five meters when it was <laughs> clearly two and a half, probably thirty. <laughs> um, uh, uh, but but it's the fact that they're flat bottomed as well. That's what makes them difficult, and and yeah. sometimes even uh, I guess I don't know what co- way you'd call it, but anti-sloping where the slope doesn't run up the face, it runs down towards the face. It's, yeah, yeah, front to uh, it's yeah. They're brutal. Yeah. Didn't Queen have a song about flat bottoms? Yeah, well, <laughs> yeah, you know that's good. Boy, it was actually going to be one of the um, Applemores' uh, greatest hits. Um, but but obviously the road hole bunker is, is the the most famous one. But oh. hell bunker. I mean these on the old course particularly the, these names of tr- of bunkers exist oh. for a reason. You know the bishop's nose, or you know, the, and it, it's part of the history of the game. But they're so strikingly beautiful when you see them, and you just don't get to see them really anywhere, other than in Scotland. So when, as I say, when when in New Zealand they start to do it at at Paraparamu, it's like, isn't that fantastic? Um, this this purity of of the game and golf at its most purest form, which leads me into something that I just can't help but mention, which is the purity and simplicity of. Of classic blade mm. irons. Oh yes, I'm up and about. You got um, me back, Phil. But, and the ones that strike me, I, I was going through my garage the other day, and I have a set of, as I've mentioned on previous podcasts, DG two seven three irons. I found an old set of top flight uh, Lee Trevino grinds, <laughs> which have a little sombrero, a sombrero stamped into the back of them, which <laughs> were going to be unused until my nephew uh, took them out because he just needed a set of clubs, and I wasn't there at the time, and away it went. Mm. Newfield McGregor's. That had that that had that slightly satin finish, and the heads were all of an inch long. I reckon. I mean, have you got some classic? Like when you think of pure blade golf clubs, have you got some classics or pure golf clubs at all? Have you got some classics? That come Me? Hmm. <laughs> Anyone? I'll go first. Yeah, the, 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 like there's a bunch you mentioned, but yeah, the classic ones. You got your Mizuno's and so on. But there's a few out there that that not many people kind of remember. The old Hogan blades that were like, oh my. They were like, they were like the apex, death yeah. a lot of the time. They did have a little bit of a long nose on them compared to some that were brought out, you know, I guess earlier than that. That were, Yeah, yeah, which I suppose was their um, uh, oh, the idea of a game forgiveness club, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, but, uh, yeah, the Hogan Blades were just absolutely awesome. I love them. Um, and the other ones, McGregor, they, they made several, you know, little blades. But um, here's a – It's called a set. Yeah, exactly right. But here's a um, – uh, one that they did, they they made a set for Bads. Right, you'll love this story. They made it. They, exactly right. they made a set for Bads because he, he ended up being with McGregor for a while. Ding. They were Roman, um, I think. That was sort of a, a copy of the Cobra head that Norman used all the years ago. Right, but they made him in a yeah, but they made him in a blade format, especially for him. Mm-hmm. And uh, anyway, when I went over years ago. 
obviously different company and had to move on from the clubs and all the rest of it. So there was like five or four sets of them in the garage. So I just the old in the back of the old car one day <laughs> and never, never return them. Um, yeah, and it's, uh, they, I still got them to this day. <laughs> cash, um, cash. So, oh, they weren't left in the car and got uh, stolen. And then, and then when Bads came home one day, back to um, Australia, we went to the range and I completely forgot that I took those set of clubs, right? And I, I pulled them out and he's like, these are the old uh, McGregor's. I said, I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. So they got me a set, remember, when I was over there and- He's like, he's like, yeah, yeah. He goes, they got AB stamped on them. <laughs> so, so oh, yeah, yeah. Well, they were yours, but then they got that. Like, absolutely dug my own grave there. But uh, yeah, they're ripping clubs. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, they couldn't fit multivariant testing on the back, so they just went with AB, and that was the uh, you know you just needed me around at the time. Um, but what we should do, Kipper, is actually get a photo of them and, and Damo, any classics that you've got, actually just we'll whack them up online because, class- I mean, there's something, there's just something very pretty about them. And I noticed that, Damo, was it the Aston Martin, the DB5? They, the DB5. They're re-releasing. They were going to make five or two. Yeah, you them. told me about they're that. Gonna, I was yeah, a little bit excited about that. £10 million that, pounds yeah. a piece or whatever it was. And it's just this beauty in its simplicity. Like all the great things are beautiful because, they are, because they are simple. And when we look at the MP60s, MP29s, you look at some of the, again, the great yeah. Mizuno blades of, of all time. And then, and then more recently, the MP20s. Beauty in its simplicity. Yeah. And that's why, and that's why yeah. I've got to throw in a plug here, boys, for my boys, the ping. I'm that excited because my new weapons are on the way and those <laughs> little heads, I'm just, what did you go? You had the blueprint, yeah, didn't you? They're just gorgeous. Yeah. Like they're, as Phil said, yeah, Ping always make nice looking clubs, but these are so simple and clean. It's not funny. So I, so when they arrive, these are you going to start complaining that there's no golf course? No, I'll right? just put them in the cupboard like the rest of my sets, but I like to look at them. <laughs> you know what I love more than blades, Phil? Yeah, watch it. Eight metres squ- meter quicks uh, in it. I love hitting the ball in the air. That's what I love. <laughs> but I think, but I think that, that is the point, Dad, is that so beauty for you is a shovel and an 8-metre quicksonet. I mean, you give the man an 8-metre quicksonet and a shovel and a bottle of wine and he's in heaven. And watch him go. Watch him turn his life around. I had, I had, I had the old the Wilson Staff FG – was it FG17 tool blades? Those really thin – they were tiny. They were hand-me-downs from an uncle um, who played over in Europe. And these things were so tiny – and I loved, I loved them, and I hit them reasonably well. So I just absolutely fell in love with them. And they got, shall I say, they were accidentally put out with uh, with a rubbish collection. I'm seething. I'm still seething. Mm. It wasn't me. <laughs> Not happy, but those things were gorgeous. Anyway, we'll move along. Let's get into a let's get into a bit of a uh, a bit of a top topic, topic. lads. We've got having Dees here. You've been at the top of this game, Dees, with um with some of the best well, players, not me. with some of the best someone's. best players of all time. <laughs> Let's get straight into what is it that makes someone the absolute best? Whether we're talking Tiger, Jack, or even guys getting to that elite level, what separates the very best from the very, very, very good? It's an interesting one. Obviously, I know golf, I guess, in that area, but it's it's in everything in life. Yeah. Like if you look at good doctors or good, you know, football players or good cricketers, know, whatever, yeah. whatever field you want to talk about, they just go above and beyond. They do the extra yard. They figure out more about themselves than most people. 
and therefore they understand their weaknesses and, and their strengths. And when I look at all of the players that I dealt with in the States, they all, you couldn't tar them all with, a, with the same brush and, brush and say, they all have this as a dis- disciplinary thing, or they all did this, or they, they're very different in their application, but they found out what worked for them and their application of what works for them was faultless, right? And, and the two probably that I'll use as example here is is Allenby, who I knew very well because obviously <laughs> caddy for a while, and his ability to not practice when he was playing bad. He would just he would just finish his round and and leave and come back the next day and he was like a jet. Right? He was just fixed. Mm-hmm. I remember saying to him one day after he had a bad round, <laughs> balls. Like, Why would I want to hit some balls? I've no fine. idea what I'm doing. <laughs> He goes, yeah, exactly right. He goes, it'll, it'll be fixed tomorrow. Fuck it, don't worry about it. And I'm like, yeah, right, okay. And then your flip side of that is your VJs, who as soon as they hit one ball off the third groove, will go and hit 4,000 golf balls to figure it out. So extraordinarily different beasts, but they both understood their how they would become good and therefore that they were good and disciplinary for that. Is there a bit of a commonality with the very, very best? So um, when you across sports, when you think about the the Jordans and the Tiger Woods and the um, even guys like a Steve Smith in cricket who just is the guy that goes in there and will practice for an extra six hours in the net, absolutely obsessed with getting better and ironing out the chinks in the armour. Is that what you need to do in whatever you're doing? <coughs> I mean, I suppose, Phil, this comes back to the um, a little bit to, you know, a bit of the Malcolm Gladwell concept in Outliers about the 10,000 hours or the the one who will go that extra mile, you have to go the extra mile to get to the very, very top. Is Are we all pretty much in agreement on that or- I mean, you did direct that at Phil, so perhaps Phil should speak before I do. No, but I, you're far more likely to make sense. <laughs> and by the way, I, I'm going to interject before you do, Dad. You you are the most inspiring tonight because I look behind you and you just got this whole amazing gym set up. Anything that comes out of your mouth would seem pretty much the, the correct answer at this point. So keep going. And I even I even used it today, Kipper. So <laughs> that's uh, that, that's even more special because you're putting in the extra hours, Dav, <laughs> yeah. to be better than the no, rest. But the, the, on, the, the point I'd like to make is because you do hear about it a lot. I've got a, a friend of mine who was a soccer journalist who, when Del Piero came out to Australia ding. and played, ding. Oh, I, well, yeah, I didn't, I didn't. But anyway, he he would he, he went to interview him at training. And watch watch the Sydney Sydney FC train, and then remarked that once everyone walked off the pitch, Del Piero came back out and was just lacing balls, like just hitting balls at, at the goals. Had someone just f- fetching stuff for him. Trained for another hour and a half, and and you hear stories like that all the time. And and and, and the thing is that all those players that walked off the pitch or all those players that don't do that extra Ooh. mile, they've had to have worked their asses off to get to the top as well, right? Like that they you talk about the 10,000 hours, they've done it. They've well and truly done it. So, you know, that doesn't mean that you have to do 30 hours to be just a little bit better than the pact. You know what I mean? Like you get to a point where the hours don't turn into as much benefit, but – they're the ones putting in that little bit extra, or but Dave, you could throw in you could throw in a Johnny Wilkinson. The stories about him staying back in the pouring rain after trainings, kicking you know ball after ball after ball after ball after ball. They're they're epic. You hear them from the people that are you know trained with him, and even those that saw it would say how inspiring that stuff was to do. And it seems to be the same thing with every one of them. So is the is the difference then, because, Dev, to your point, and just because you know I have to bring up basketball, the stories of Kobe Bryant, and I, I listened to a, a great 
story about Kobe Bryant from Jay Triano, who was at the time the assistant coach of the Dream Team of the USA basketball team. And he was talking about Kobe Bryant when they went to a camp in, in Vegas. And at 5 a.m. that Kobe Bryant, you know, he said, I oh, will catch up for breakfast. Oh, no, what, 5 a.m., uh, I'm in the gym and I've got my personal trainer and then I'll do stretching. I'll go for breakfast for half an hour and then I'll go to the gym. I'll do a two-hour workout. And then what do you do then? Well, then I come back and have a nap, a nap for an hour. And then I go for the team workouts and our teams work out for three hours. And he said, what? Then you have a relax. Yeah, then I'll go home. I'll go back to the room. I'll have a shower. And then I'll do another two-hour one-on-one session and then do my weight session and then do my stretching. And then I'll go to bed and I'll wake up at four o'clock the next morning and I'll do it again. And he was talking about how inevitably mm. infectious it was, even for guys like LeBron James, to watch a leader do that. And this is the key point, Kipper, to watch a leader do that and say, if I want to be number one, this is what I need to do. So therefore is the question is, one is to identify the work, but the other one is who is prepared Mm. to put in the work and who is prepared to do the effort, whatever it takes to become number one. Are you prepared to be the best batsman in the world? Are you prepared to be the best golfer? Or Kipper, as you were saying before, which I think is a fascinating (laughs) story, to be the best caddy uh, is this, in the world. Is, so let's talk about – so we'll talk about golf for a minute, but I want to talk about the focus of cutting <laughs> because you've set me on my ass a little bit in terms of the fact you've glorified pack horses and really you don't do bugger all. Other than there's an insight, and you made the point before, that there were seven guys. Mm. If you were if you were potentially wanted to be the best player in the world at golf, you said there are potentially – maybe at the time when you were, maybe now – there were potentially only seven guys you'd want yeah, on your back. Yeah, um, it, it's uh, yeah. Fanny, Fanny was, was in Fanny that was top, again, top, yeah. top there. Yes, Be- that's right. But, because, but the thing yeah. is, it's more the fact, like as you say, like you know, I agree with all the points there that they go the extra mile. Uh, they all do, and same with the caddying. I remember Baz looking me in the eye one day Thanks. and saying, "When we're going over to states, and I want you on my bag," he goes, "I'm going to get Phil Mickelson's caddy bones ding, ding. to um, spend a day with you because." I want to be the best player in the world, so you need to be the best caddy in the world. And if you're not the best caddy in the world, then I'll have to fire. And I'm like, I understand. And he said, so So he goes- Did Ellenby have that conversation with you at any point in time? No. Sorry, no. On any of those parts? No, he didn't. No, he did, he, uh, no, Alan go on, just, Kipper, sorry. Alan just said story. you're fired. He didn't have the first part. He just <laughs> go, the, go, the go, end. Go, go. Yeah, so, so point is that that's exactly like anyone that's as driven as those guys, that, that they, they do, they, they don't leave any stone unturned and they make sure that that's, that's like the level they have all around them as well, their team. Okay, but best practice mm. caddying – sorry, Dad, but you, you spoke about best practice yeah. caddying. Now, now, we joked on the couch about barren metric pressure, which, by the way, is now trademark. <laughs> Uh, instead of, but I jokingly said to you, surely you don't take that into account. Your answer yeah, was categorically. We we used to do. I remember in Canada, um, just to give you sort of an example of this. In Canada, we'd wake up in the morning and we'd clock into the nearest weather station and we take down a few of the the major data points. You know, air temperature. They had different dew points and blah blah blah. I can't remember half the stuff now. But anyway, we'd take down some big ones and then obviously wind, wind shift, hours they were supposed to shift from, um, knots rate, all that sort of stuff. And you'd have it written down in your book as like a running, uh, almost like a running game. So from tee off time, which might be 7.15, right through to last ball on 18, which is, you know, around about 12 o'clock or thereabouts, five hours, you'd have every hour or every 15-minute increment on on what should be happening happening with the, I suppose, the overall environment um, to the best of your ability. Now, of course, that changes, but there'd be some real math behind it. And and as I said, in Canada, it was, it was just terrible because you'd tee off early and without a word of a lie, your eight iron would go around about 15 yards to maybe 17 yards shorter 
than what it would at, at say the the back end of that round at around lunchtime, right? It's just through those elements, and it was terrifying because you get on the first hole, the, you know, you play a rips driver down there, and all of a sudden you got you know, say 120-something yards, right, and normally that, that would be a standard wedge or, or even a, a gapper, and you're telling them to hit eight-iron with confidence and they're nervous, you're nervous, and, and it, but without the knowledge and the backing and here's what's happened in practice rounds and here's – then you can go with it. So you're dead right, Phil. It, it, the, the top guys and, and, and girls, they, they do it. Well, what, so in, what – l- let me get this one in. <laughs> because what interests, what interests me about you, Kipper, to, to bring it back to when you were actually playing – is I've heard you tell a story that there was a crossroads moment for you, right, mm. where you had to make a choice. You're either going to keep going as a player or you're going to switch and become a caddy. Mm. And what, what influenced that decision? What was it that you didn't think you had the ability or you weren't willing to put in, like, stu- stupid amounts of, of work to get marginally better to, to the layperson? Well, I think that the honest, the honest answer to that, Dav, was I was putting in more hours than Aaron – and I could see he was better than me. Right. And that really got to me, I suppose, because I, kn- I knew at the time he was basically the best amateur in the world. And then when he turned pro initially and in, in the way he was playing, he was clearly inside the top 50, top 30 in the world uh, as a general standard. And to watch my work ethic versus his, he was amazing work ethic, don't get me wrong, but mm. I worked harder. There's no doubt about that. But I wasn't as good. And... That was pretty confronting in regards to. I mean, I'll name drop here, but Phil Mickelson basically sat me down and gave me that ultimatum. He he said, "You've got to make a decision here, mate." Because I played with him and Bads in Carlsbad the second week we were, were over there, and I'd had the meeting with Bones. Bones had taken me through all the rigmarole, how to be a great caddy, and all the rest of it. And then uh, Phil flew us out to his house to stay with uh, his wife and and um, family for the weekend, and took us to play. And he'd never seen me hit a ball. And uh, it's another story another day. But basically, he, after the round, said straight up, he goes, you've got to make a decision and you need to do it now for, for yourself and for Aaron. And he said, Bones made that life sacrifice for me and I'll never, ever forget it. And he goes, and I'm de- indebted to him for that. And it's a mental thing that he's had to deal with to, to not play. Um, so you've got to be ready to do that yeah. if that's what you want. And if you don't want to do that, then walk away. So, yeah, it, it, it probably but more I came down to the fact that I wasn't as good as I thought I should be. So so within that, uh, the key question that I've got, so John Rahm was number one in the world mm. for a week and a half. <laughs> Now, Bads, Bads did everything right, had an obsession with being the best. You know, th- this idea – so Jim Collins, good to great, a, a great book for anyone who's into business. Jim Collins has a concept of renting your cottage cheese, which I've mentioned before on a, on a podcast as well. When Dave Scott, the Hawaii Ironman, used to, was so fastidious – about being the absolute best and being absolutely prepared that he used to rinse his cottage cheese. He, he wasn't sure. He knew how many calories were in the cheese, but not that was in the brine. So he used to rinse all the brine out of it. So at what point in time does an Aaron Baddeley say, I w- I've done everything to be the best in the world. How do I keep re-motivating mm. myself and staying it's motivated a- when I've discovered that my absolute best is 31? And, and then to that note, what is then the difference between a Ricky Fowler getting to nine or eight or seven and then a Tiger Woods or now a, a Justin Thomas at number one versus sustaining number one like Tiger did for 7,283,000 yeah. yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, look, I mean, I, I think there's a range of answers in all of that, but but the, I suppose the – well, okay, no, I mean, look, like Tiger, Tiger's obviously an exception in a lot of ways because of, he, he, you know, in front of your eyes via his entire – Documented, documented life, like he's done everything that you could possibly do to train an elite player, mentally, physically, you know, technically. But 
him aside, if you if you go back to say your your Aaron, like he hasn't reached where he wanted to reach, and he had a very candid conversation with me like that once before, and I said you must be very driving in one of his fancy cars and he just come out of his house with all his healthy family and kids and I said geez you're pretty lucky mate I said you got you know you've really succeeded and he just looked at me straight in the eye and he said I've failed and I couldn't believe it and he said I haven't failed in in what I've gone and done with life but in golf I've completely failed and he goes and I'm not accepting that and he still to this day works that hard but he I think he'll admit that he lost his way a little bit like I say a Baker Finch he had you know, a lot of people getting stuck into that action and uh, and that's cost him dearly. Otherwise, I firmly believe that kid would have been close, if not number one in the world, because he was better than Scott, better than Dust Justin Rose, better than Serge. It's better than all of them. It cost me it cost money. It. <laughs> I, I actually declared, I declared at a, at a dinner once at a BMW thing when I was working for Spalding Ding, Top Flight Ding, Hogan Ding, up on the Gold Coast. I had an argument with a bloke who owned a few BMW <laughs> dealerships up there just because I didn't like him. And he declared that Adam Scott was a significantly better player than Aaron Baddeley. I said, then you're just mm. confused mm. because Baddeley is just jet, so far yeah. ahead, it's ridiculous. But the results, but history yeah. will not point to that. And so I suppose this is the, and it's not an easy conversation to answer in the, in the context of a podcast. And there's a lot of exploration to do about it from people mm. smarter than me. But there's got to be something else. So, so within, Malcolm Gladwell talks about timing and opportunity and luck and the rule of 10,000 hours. Stuart McGill would argue that timing was bad for him, otherwise he's the best leg spinner the world's ever seen because he was coming in at a time when Shane Warne was already dominating. Jim Collins talks about this hedgehog concept of having these inter- intersecting circles, a Venn diagram of what can I be the best in the world at? What am I passionate about and what is my key driver in this whole thing? So everyone's tried to analyse it. There's got to be something, though, that we can – that through numbers, data, that says Jordan is better than Clyde Drexler because – and it can't just be – there's got to be that – there's got to be a word that starts with C that rhymes with run. That that there's got to be something else. And demonetised for sure. There's got to be something, <laughs> but there's got to be something else in them that is. Yeah, that is, Dave. I mean, well, got- I mean, I, I, I'm just I'm just here um, giggling away because the, the the name that springs to mind for me is Tyson Gay. Mm-hmm. Now, Tyson Gay has run the hundred meters in nine point six nine, and he'll forever be the second fastest man. <laughs> Yeah, and, and and probably juiced up significantly to get to that number. Oh, not probably. Meanwhile, I think probably he was, he was done for it, wasn't he? Meanwhile, Usain, Usain Bolt is crossing the finishing line, looking over his left shoulder with a slowing big, down with a big grin on his face, yeah. slowing down. <laughs> and and it's just like it's like Wiley Coyote chasing the Roadrunner, like losing his mind. And this is this guy has been faster Ooh. than any every single human being who ever walked the earth, except for one. And I just think that there's that, nothing he can do. That we know there's, of. That we, that we know of, sure. Mm. But there's nothing he can do about that. You know, I just think there is just an end. There's a thing about a human being that makes them just a little bit more suited, well-equipped, naturally gifted to just execute better on, on the day in that activity than everybody else. Are you saying, Dave, that no matter how much work some people will do, there's just a fundamental reality that unless every single one of the moons lines up for you, combined with all that effort and all that extra work, then your best might still not be yeah, quite and, and as good as you know. Best. I think I, I've seen, I've, I've, well, I've seen, mm, I've seen Kipper hit the ball, and I, and I, I think he's a phenomenal player, and and he said it himself that he he wasn't where he thought he should be. 
And I, and I just think, you know, as someone who has also pursued hmm. a sporting endeavor, I was a lot, I, you know, I wasn't knocking, you know, no, bloody, you know, John Stockton didn't sit me down and say, listen, David, you got to make a decision. Are you going to go for the NBA? So I didn't get anywhere near that level, but I, I you know, it was a lesson <laughs> enough. <laughs> it was a- I thought you were talking about lawn bowls, David. You're quite good at it. <laughs> But just to drop a couple of to drop a couple of names that aren't significant ones, but they're significant to me. So a good mate of mine, Andrew Shuden, ding, um, mm. ripping fellowship. No, no, but but commonly regarded on tour when he was on tour as the best in the best handful of ball strikers. Obviously not as good as Ellenby because otherwise Kipper would have mentioned him in his tales from the tour. <laughs> but but guys used to go out of their way to hit balls warming up next to Chewy when he was on the practice field because you'd never hear chunk, skinny, ding, dong. Mm. You'd just flush, 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 flush. He's now catting for Cam Davis because he's he's realised that there was just a point where only one on the Hooters tour, he won in Korea, he won Queensland PGA. He, he competed quite comfortably, you know, played the US Open at Shinnecock, but there was still a gap where he is the best ball striker I've ever played with. He, he's the best golfer I've ever played in my life with. But the gap between... Chewy, mm. and then the the best is significant, and so the gap between a John Rahm who, and, and without being hard to John Rahm, did he did he earn the number one or did he kind of stumble into the number one? I mean, Justin Thomas, oh. did he really earn it or did he stumble into it? Tiger Woods, when he made it to number one, like you can really clearly he mm. earned it, and that's you know mm. Michael Jordan earned goat, Wayne Gretzky earned goat. <laughs> I reckon Rahm will be back there. Like I, 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 as in, I, I think Rahm's the real deal. Okay. Do you think he's got? Do you think he's got the mental capacity no. to have that? Is that is that his? No, but that's my point. Is that his? Yes. Weak so Bones point, needs to um, that is going to cost him. Yeah. He, look, Rahm, he'll be he'll admittedly himself. He's got some you know little demons in the closet there all the time. But he his his technique is so good that he he'll be continually up around the top. You know, how many in the world for for pretty much the rest of his days? I think that's how good the guy is. But there's been there's been quite a few Phil in golf. You could sort of throw that label at, at Keimer when he got it was un- mm. like a lot of people who didn't follow the European tour at the time didn't even know. Um, Westy w- was mm. there for a while. I, I'm a big Westy fan, Westwood fan. But um, he, you know, he copped a little bit for doing for being you know number one when Tiger was out. Even like Donald, I mean, he was Donald did win enough times to be pretty to be considered a number one at the time. And he was the number one, genuinely. I don't think you could argue with that. But there's a lot, well, my point is, is there's a lot of these guys that sort of have got there, and it's not through no fault of their own. I mean, it's all done, through, you know, it's all data-driven. It's all done through the point system that they've got, which I think that roll, the two-year rolling system's pretty good, generally speaking. Of course, there's going to be an issue every now and again with it. But you can't blame the guys. Like, it just puts this extra pressure on them. And then when people are going, well, is he really number one? It, it, I, feel, I sort of feel for them a little but bit. But he makes it to the, the challenge, really, though, is not get it's as much getting there as when you get knocked off your throne, getting back there, the ability yeah. to actually return to mm. the top of that perch. And that's that's something that drove Jordan. You know, and, and the sting, you saw mm. that in the, um, the documentary series when Carl Malone was named MVP. And Jordan was playing, you know, Chicago were playing Utah in the in finals. It was sort of like, yeah, well done, MVP, but I'm going to show you who the man is because such was he was stung by it. And that's that's ultimately got to be the challenge. So it's got to be you got to be good enough to get there, but got to realise mm. that it's far harder to lead than follow, and be stung hard enough that if you lose, if you get knocked off, because there's a lot of stories, and I think that's a great podcast topic too of the people who just imploded in their quest to get to number one, who got within reach and then. 
and then fell away significantly. But mm-hmm. it's but the, there's also this other challenge is that if if you had to be top ten in the world to make a living, as opposed to and this is the argument about tennis, mm. as opposed to making two million a year at one hundred and fifty in the world or two hundred. Yeah, year, yeah. Do you have? Are you prepared? To do, and I think that's what what separates. Are you prepared to do the work, and are you prepared to just rinse your cottage cheese in order, yeah. in order to get there? It's about earning it, isn't it, Phil? Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah, it's I a really agree good with point. that, though. It, it definitely comes down most of it anyway to a pure hunger, drive, obsession, effectively. Hmm. I just think I just think there's a there's a difference to golf about the kind of contest that it is. Where I think the comparison with a Jordan doesn't quite work because. The, you know, Jordan can walk onto a court and, and intimidate an opponent because there's a defensive side to it. There's a, there's more of an interaction. Whereas golf, I think, is is just just by the way it's played, it, there's a purity about it that, you know, there's obviously a psychological warfare going on, but you 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 play your best and it won't be good enough or you, it will be good enough. 96 Whereas- Masters Day. 96 Masters Day. <laughs> <laughs> All, all, all warfare, all warfare, psychological, Dav. And when you consider, when you think about the intimidation, there has been no more intimidating sport oh, than agree with Tiger that, yeah. totally. um, having a lead on a, on a Sunday, or people looking over their shoulder, looking at the leaderboard, seeing Tiger starting to get birdied. You hear, you hear mm-hmm. pros have, talk about that for the last twenty years of seeing Tiger there, going, "Oh, he's hunting me down." Yeah. Like they themselves, you know, but they can't directly would say that he was point, one of the most directly influence the game and that was that you know Jordan yeah could actually you know, if you got a really it got an unbelievable defender they could mm. actually influence the outcome whereas in golf the influence it's is all psychological. psychological so I'd actually argue that there's a greater psychological mm. impost on yeah. on having a competitor like Felder I mean like Norman will never admit it and everyone else admits it or, or speaks about it. 96 Masters, going into their last round of the 96 Masters <laughs> is that Feldo We don't talk is, about this but, Phil that Feldo had something, and I, I don't know what it is, and certainly Norman wasn't scared, and it turns out, you know, as stories come out, there are a number of other issues going on in, you know, from a physical health point of view and otherwise, but there's no doubt that there was a little bit of that, oh, Christ, not Felder, like anyone else but Felder. Yeah, he just knew he wasn't going away, didn't he? That's the key there. Like, he knew Felder wasn't going to go away. Like Yeah, that the fight was there for the yeah, day. Yeah, he had to play decent to win. And Yeah, he had to execute the skill. Like, he had still yeah. had to, yeah. And there's so many other things that, that ran on that day, as, as, Phil pointed, as, as Phil pointed out. But, yeah, ultimately it was that the horse behind him was a good horse. Yeah, which is mm. running against black yeah, caviar. Yeah, he was a I stayer, mean, yeah. Like, try running yeah. against black caviar when you just know that black caviar is obsessed with a horse being just in front of it because it, yeah. it just hates having anything in front of it. But, Kipper, what we don't want to know so much now <laughs> is about who's about world number cutting. one. What we do want to know, why? What, what prompted your journey, and I think Dave touched on it before, from, from potential player to superstar caddy to the superstars, name dropper, <laughs> keeping up with the Kippers 101, extraordinary human being that you are. Give us <laughs> – I, I want to know that story because I've never heard it. It's a how his journey into caddy started. Two, was that two what you're parts asking? to it. A, uh, the heartfelt story, uh, the whinge, and then the <laughs> then the, the switch. So I'll do the whinge first. It was okay player as a, as a junior, uh, practicing and playing with bads and state team and so on and so forth. And we hit off some promotional matches for a company at the the old do you remember they used to have golf world trade shows and you would have been a part of those Phil anyway they had one at uh, Albert Park once and anyway hit off some (laughs) some of the mats and got a slight rip but 
in the mat. And then there was heaps of people watching because we were doing some promos for products. And I thought, oh, I can't pull out. So I've got to continue to hit. And I moved the ball to another section, hit. Matt grabbed and tore all my wrist and tore ligaments off and it was horrible, actually. So anyway, physio, you know, months of treatment, all the rest of it, couldn't play. And Bad said to me, because you can't play, he goes, I'm. I've got into a couple of events over summer. Do you want to come away caddying? And I'm like, oh, he goes, I oh, know you don't want to be a caddy. He goes, but we're going to go on tour and it'll be just, you know, testing out what it's like. So I said, yeah, why not? So I remember sitting at the driving range I used to work at, out in Maroonda, and I thought, that's it. So I penned my letter of resignation, put it in, and walked out. Well, a week later, we're in, uh, we're in Adelaide playing the Jacobs Creek, and my first night on tour there, I walked downstairs from our room into the foyer. There's Norman. There was uh, Michael Campbell. So I just wandered up to the bar, just sort of like a tiny little kid I was, thinking no one's going to talk to me. And they all were open, chatting. I sat down and chatted for the first ever time to my idol in Norman, just, you know, openly. It was unbelievable. So I walked back up to the room, and Bad's is just in the room, and, and I'm like, you have no idea how good of a night I've just had, and and uh, and that was my sort of first introduction to the life of a caddy. We go out, played pretty good that week. He got into contention, actually, finished, in the end, uh, only finished like 12th or something, but he was had a chance, and he was an amateur. Next week was the Australian Open. Anyway, lights it up first round, seven under through the first nine holes, and we led the entire tournament uh, all the way through. And obviously, um, you know, history shows he went on to win. But the night before, which is now the second part of the story, right? So that's the heartfelt story. I, I was got an got an injury, that's why I couldn't play. The second part of the story is the the the, the final, let's call it night after he'd led the tournament. We were, we were uh, tied, no, stroke ahead, I think, we tied for lead to Colin Montgomery and Greg Norman. Everyone in the locker room was, you know, what are you going to do, all the caddies? What are you going to do tonight? You can't just stay home. No caddy stays home the night they're leading. You've got to go out and have a few beers and otherwise you'll be thinking about it all. And I'm like, at at, at that point, in all honesty, boys, you won't believe it. But I was a real nerd. Well, you will believe that. But uh, I, I just never drank. I never yeah. did anything much. And I'm like, oh, all right, I'll go. So I rang a few mates and said, went out to a place called the Slip In. So it was a tremendous. Tre- <laughs> tre- <laughs> Slip it in. Oh, tre- that's fantastic. What a joint that is. Um, it's now anyway, called the trailer. Uh, it, it gets to, I went out probably about I don't know, eight o'clock. It gets to, it gets to about 10.30 and I'm like, okay, do the right thing. We're not off till two o'clock. I think it was the next day. So I got heaps of time. I'm going to say goodnight, boys. And, and that's it. So I only had a, you know, a couple of beers. And, but anyway, I, I leave. Well, I leave. The, the extraordinarily short story of this is I ended up having to work, walk from the heart of the city down to Rose Bay, which is like 14 or 15K. Got home at just on four. Because it took me six hours because I went to three McDonald's stops <laughs> on the way um, because I, I didn't know where I was. And back in them days, you didn't have GPS or anything, right? So I walked through King's Cross at about two. Never done that. And I was frightened out of my, out of my mind because I was just a little kid. Had the keys in my hands because I've heard about all these horror stories in the cross. <laughs> anyway, get home at about four. Had about three or four hours sleep. Up about nine. I had to be at the course by like 10. And then Badge is like, what did you do last night? <laughs> And he's like, oh, okay. And so I didn't tell him the story. Anyway, we win. Then I just told him what happened. And from that point onwards, every time we're in contention, he's like, you're going out tonight? <laughs> so, so, so I did. And then I had to fill him in with the stories the next day. And it worked like a charm. Like we, we, I, I then went out for the rest of my life on every night. <laughs> and from there, but then a beautiful having having – Having been out with you on the Terra in Sydney, <laughs> Deeds, I know you wouldn't have left too many short. No, no, I was yeah, reasonably active. 
<laughs> All right, boys. Should we? One last thing before we go, I do want to. Um, we talk. Obviously, we talk a lot about golf and and what great events we've been to. Some cool events together. We've even the Presidents Cup recently, or well, last year. But what's the best sporting event that you've been to that wasn't golf? Is there anything else that compares to a to a um, the atmosphere that you get at a at a golf tournament when oh, things I can are humming straight away? And can I say? Disclaimer: It was at the golf, but I didn't see any golf because it was not at the golf course. It's the uh, <laughs> waste management now, but it used to be known as the FBR Open in uh, in Scottsdale, in Arizona, and they have a Phoenix, party yeah. hole. They used to, right? And then the party hole's got you know sixteen thousand people, but then they have a tent, birds birds nest. And that tent had to get moved off course because people were waking up in the bunkers and on putting greens and all over the course just hammered. So this joint, Tim Clark, who's my favourite uh, little golfer in uh, in the US or was the favourite little golfer in the US, he would take that week off so that he could go to the bird's nest all week and not play the tournament and the tour- and he lived in Arizona. So he, he would he, he would live about two or three days <laughs> from the course, take the week off just so he can <laughs> Go to the old bird's nest every night, and that's my favourite sporting event outside of the sporting event. <laughs> Didn't see a golf shot all week. <laughs> no Mexican. Uh, uh, everything went on at that joint. It was unbelievable. <laughs> Philly, oh, mine without a doubt is an Anzac Day, AFL Anzac Day, Collingwood <clears throat> Essendon. When yeah, you have ninety five thousand people, an Anzac Day obviously is 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 the iconic day in Australia. It is for me. 90,000 people when it's the minute silence and mm. not one person in the stadium even coughs. And I remember watching going to an equivalent event where someone called out, they, they had a minute silence for, it might have been John Landy or someone, and someone called out, who's John Landy, halfway through, and the crowd almost wanted to kill him. However, with, mm. with the Anzac, no one even has the courage to cough, not a phone go off. I mean, you, you no. see, it's like going to a, a funeral and that is that solemn. And so it's actually not the sporting event, but it's the event of respect and it's just a fantastic mm. reminder that mm. humans can do the right thing, even in Victoria, and it's probably not a bad point, is that that's, <laughs> that's the kind of commitment that is required when things go as they are now, is just do the right thing. And 90,000, 95,000 mm. people mm. who don't, almost like they don't even breathe, is the ultimate respect to sacrifices that continue to be made but were made and it's fruity to my heart and there you go that was easy for me Davlov <laughs> that's it that's yeah well that, that is a good one I, I went to the first six of those actually as a, as a, ding, as a ding, kid ding, I mean, ding 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 I had a, <laughs> I had a mate that was uh, that was an ding. MCC member ding. so we but I, I don't think there was a I don't think one of the first six of those the the, the, the biggest margin was about a goal I think across a whole bunch of them. So, you know, it was just- It was a triple goal yeah. at the, uh, with two minutes left from the last one from Carousella to sail through that night when it was pouring rain. I still remember yeah. that. Yeah. The, the one I remember is is, is yeah, the clock winding down and, and Buckley with the ball had an opportunity to just blaze away, scores tied. All he had to do was keep, get a point, tried to hit Rocker instead. Rocker missed it, siren sounds, draw, you know. Rocker by baby. Deb, that was the first one. That was one. the first one. Yeah, well, I was oh. there. So- no, but look, I, I, I mean, you know, sporting events, you know, the Australian Open. I mean, you've got to be. I think you've got to be centre court. I, I got the grounds pass the last time I Ding. went, and I'll never go again. 
Grouse Plus, <laughs> Grouse Plus is a horrible. Try and fight some shade at the Australian Open. It can't be done. You need to be sent a court or a high sense. And the other one is I, I was I was fortunate enough to get a media pass to the last game of an NBA regular season, Chicago versus the New York Knicks. It was it was triple overtime. New York needed to win to 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 get into the the, the conference uh, to get into the, the the finals, the playoffs. Amazing experience. The ability to then get into the change rooms and and see the way the media operated. Yeah, that was that was pretty special as well. That was from the assistant commissioner or something of the NBA, wasn't it, Dad? That was, that got you that ticket are you, ding? Are you trying to get, trying to ding again? That was uh, that was the <laughs> the vice president of NBA International, Brooks Meek, yep, at the time. Who I now, but just so what an operation! I mean, I, I met the guy once when I was working at Basketball Australia. He had no he had no reason to remember me. He had no reason, and uh, and I just and I just sent him an email and just said uh, I'd love a media pass. I don't know if you remember me, but this is who I am. This is where we met. Within half an hour, I got a phone call from his personal assistant. She teed it all up. I went, I got to go to NBA head office and then he, you know, sat down with him. What I remember about this guy though, in terms of, in terms of precision is he said he was going to give me 30 minutes, showed me around the place, took me back into his office. We were talking. I was mid sentence. I was mid sentence at 29 minutes and 50 seconds and he was nodding and listening to me and he stood up. And he was nodding and listening to me and he just gestured for me to get up and then I was out of there, bang on 30 minutes. <laughs> he had no interest <laughs> in me being there for a second longer than I needed to be. <laughs> That's almost German efficiency. <laughs> Damo, bring us home. Mine's a little bit more humble awesome, than uh, than you three. It was um, uh, the All-Ireland Hurling Final at Croke Park in Dublin uh, back in, oh, what year was it? Probably 2008 or something. Honestly, it was absolutely <laughs> packed. You've got, uh, I don't know if you guys have seen a game of hurling, but seeing that live, they are the toughest sportsmen on the planet. It's as hard as nails. These guys were then still, like, this is a, this stadium could not be more packed. And these guys were still not getting paid as professionals. They were, had a, a, a you know, they had a normal, normal day to day job and, um, they played it for the, for the love of the sport. One of the guys was actually working over in, I think it was like Finland or might have even been Sweden and he'd fly in, on the Friday night to then go and play on the, on the Saturday. It was the atmosphere was unbelievable. And I've got um, family. My grandfather actually played played for um, Tipperary, and Mum's got photos of him coming off the field with his face just bleeding and just big smiles and stuff. And so it's a, I've got a I've got a, um, a soft spot for the sport itself. But just go and if you haven't done it, go and Google hurling and see how ridiculously skillful these guys are and tough as nails. It's a good idea um, for a, uh, the best spectacle I've ever seen. Def, sorry. Unbelievable. I, I thought hurling was the was the um, the post. No, that's curling. I thought, no, no, no. I thought hurling, hurling was the the post event from a hot dog getting competition. But uh. <laughs> this we could go for ages hey. on this going around with different sporting events because you just start thinking of them, don't you? So it's a, it is a ripping um, a ripping segment. The old sports events. Yeah, we might have to we might have to relive it again in a future um, future podcast. But on that note, we'll bring this tenuous links golf podcast to a close. Special thanks to today's sponsor, the Moto Caddy M7 Remote Electric Buggy, making caddies once and for all totally <laughs> redundant. And be sure to support us by watching Golf Barons on demand on Ko and Foxtel with new episodes released weekly. Perfect curfew enforced watching. If you want to own the season outright, head over to baronslife.com and you can buy the full season for yourself. And while you're there, sign up to get reminders about our podcast and Barron's Life Golf and Lifestyle magazine with a new issue to be released next week. There's some great reading in that. Until next time, Barron's, from the whole Barron's team, thanks for listening and add some swagger to your swing.